You are listening to the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Peace, everybody. Peace, everybody. Peace, everybody. Once again, this is the Rabbit Hole Podcast, and I'm your host today, Shane Hare. This is session number 11, and today we have some good information. We have some good information. We have a great interview that's coming up. Uh, We're going to actually interview with uh, Dr. Lonnie Brooks. He's a uh, professor at Cal State East Bay, and uh, he's actually a mentor of mine, Um, uh, you know, very interesting gentleman. Uh, But today we're going to go ahead and talk about a few things probably in uh, the past podcast you may have heard me talk about all this future stuff right this future thought afro futurism and things like that astro futurism you know just terms like that we're talking about you know i normally ask a lot of my guests projecting out 100 years what's going on in a field and how do they perceive it to be or uh or project it to actually be at that time you know um, uh, we, we've gotten some pretty good answers, some some pretty good ideas of what uh, technology uh, would, you know, be like maybe 100 years. But you know what? This guy, Dr. Brooks, he's going to have, probably tell us a little bit about looking way past that thousands of years from now, 5000 years from now. What would the future definitely look like? Will it look like 2015 as it does today? Probably not. It's going to definitely be much more advanced. Uh, He looks at everything from technology to, you know, human interactions um, to culture to how the actual earth is to, you know, how we're actually traveling around the universe to get to other planets, Um, you know, on these, uh, you know, just picture yourself, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to go to another planet. There's something that's called, like, let's just say a starship, right? Who's on that starship and where are they go? Where will they be going, right? We've heard and we talked about the Mars One mission um, that that NASA is actually working on currently. Right now, they've selected 100 uh, participants, human beings, who will start in, I believe, 2016 uh, to begin going up to Mars. And actually creating a uh, community up there. Um, But right now, we're going to go ahead and call Dr. Brooks. I'm so excited to get him on our call. He was was another uh, person who motivated me to start these podcasts and to actually start thinking uh, from the perspective of, you know, looking into the future. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go ahead and give him a call. Give him a call. He just went ahead and texted and said, you know what, Shane, I'm going to need another five minutes. This this guy is your typical professor. Always has a book in his hand. Always just has some just some some great wisdom to share Um, and always brings a perspective that you know what you would have never even thought of but his perspective is very interesting is very contemporary is very unique um and 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 it's in and his perspective is relevant and extremely conscious to uh what we need in our professors today um when i first met dr brooks uh, I, i was taking classes working 
working towards my master's in communication at Cal State East Bay. Uh, and there was a workshop. We, uh, I, I was taking one of these classes. It was probably quantitative research or something like that. And every, every week or every other week, we will have a seminars class where a professor, they will come up and basically present on the stuff that they're studying, what they've studied in the past. Or maybe a, a theory or a concept that, you know, that they're currently working on and interested in. So Dr. Brooks, he got up to the uh, in front of the class. We're in a small room sitting around a round table type table. Students and other professors of the department were all sitting there. And Dr. Brooks got up and you know what? I didn't even think that he was a professor because he was just like a, a real laid back guy and he just looked like a regular guy. Um, and he got up and then all of a sudden, bam, he started talking about, you know what? Future thought. Some of the research that he's been working on um, with regards to uh, organizational structures in a lot of these uh, corporate American environments and how they look today and what they'll look like tomorrow. Um, he also started talking about uh, Afrofuturism and a gentleman who's currently working on that um, um, on that idea. Um, and, and that right there really sparked my interest. You talk about a student sitting in a classroom, um, just sitting there, you know, normally a lot of my classes, I really enjoyed the professors. Um, but sometimes I would catch myself daydreaming as they were there up there, you know, kind of presenting whatever their topic they're discussing. And it's all important and it's all re relevant to the program. But I'm thinking in the back of my head, well, how can I actually use this at work? How can I actually use this with my family? Um, how can I actually use this for my for, for my, my personal development? This is this information that I need to either you know, find something inside myself to get interested so that I can go ahead and write about it or, you know, and, and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of those times, uh, like I said, I just get caught daydreaming like a lot of us do. But when Dr. Brooks, he got up there and started speaking and presenting on future thought. You know what? That opened up a whole new realm of ideas, of concepts. To me because up until that point I'm just like everybody else I'm a student I'm a family man I'm a worker I'm a you know person trying to make his way around in this society and, and you know I'm just working on you know uh, what's going on right now what, what's going on then and now what's going on right now what's going on this instant is there a fire that I got to put out? Is there something I have to take care of? Is there some place I have to be? Is there something I have to turn in? Um, is, is there somebody I have to pick up? You know, I have children and, you know, I'm very active with my wife and our children. So, um, you know, it, it's very rarely rare. Up until that point, it was very rare that I always thought, well, you know what? What's what's 100 years going to look like? Of course, I, I think about what it look be like for my children um, and we try to plan accordingly for them. But what are we really doing for ourselves? And right then and there, when I heard Dr. Brooks speak about 
future thought and thinking beyond the next 20 years, thinking beyond the next 50 years and thinking beyond a hundred, even a thousand years from now. And even thinking um, in the realm of what if you can actually make it to space to another planet? Would you go? Would you check it out? Would you take your family there? And, you know, what's those criteria of, you know, you getting onto that starship? And then once you're on that starship, you know, what role would you actually play? Would a lot of the um, the roles that are played here on Earth be the same up there? Will it be the people with the, the money, with the strength, with the knowledge who will overtake the people who are poor, who has a lack of knowledge, um, who don't know any better? Or would everybody be equal? Those are the kind of questions that he posed in his class, which till this day, I think about it damn near every day is what I'm doing today. Will it benefit me tomorrow? And most importantly, will it benefit my family in the future? Because I plan for my future family to be strong, educated entrepreneurs, very um, useful individuals in society, you know, to help. Uh, what can I say here? Um, you know, be it influence in society to inspire others you know to to be proud of the work that their their forefathers actually put in place what i'm going to do right now is we're going to go ahead and bring dr brooks online with us right now hello hello dr brooks yes hi shane right now we are live on the rabbit hole podcast first off i have to say thank you thank you thank you thank you again for making yourself available to uh, be a guest on the rabbit hole podcast sure yeah no i'm so excited about this project you know in terms of reaching out and uh gaining uh you know african-american professional perspectives i think it's um it's a it's a project whose time is long overdue in terms of just you know creating a new, you know, using a new medium to um, to give more people perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and I think we've been pretty successful with doing that so far to date. As you know, um, we've interviewed everyone from African-Americans who work in uh, Chinese uh, medicine. Uh, we've talked to psychologists. We've talked to uh, uh, technologists, we've talked to African-American women who work in Hollywood as production managers, um, getting a pretty good idea of what uh, a lot of our brothers or sisters and sisters are doing in their field and what's keeping them relevant, what keeps them thriving to get to that next step or be the best person they could be. And I think some of the overall themes that I've identified so far is that number one, the number one thing here is hard work. You got to work hard. And then secondly, number two, the, the concept of using mentors, you got to have mentors to be successful, especially in a lot of these, uh, you know, very challenging, um, very challenging type of fields that a lot of uh, our guests have uh, been who currently work in. So tell me, Dr. Brooks, uh, what are you currently working on? Well, um, you know, I'm doing work on 
Afrofuturism right now, um, and that's really uh, interesting. And 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 when I say Afrofuturism, yes, I'm talking, you know, and I think it's important to define that term. Um, yes. it, it was coined by Mark Gary in, in the mid '90s, and it combined science fiction and fantasy to uh, re-examine how the future is currently imagined, and then to reconstruct futures thinking with deeper insight into the black experience. Yes. Uh, you know, especially as slavery forced Africans to confront an alien world surrounded by new colonial technologies. So, in that sense, you know, it really kind of reinterprets what the future um, is and can be about. Um, and looks at you know prosthetically enhanced future yes and also to take on the the white technologies that have you know like aliens enslaved and transported african african people from one world to another to erase their past and remake their future so you know we kind of re-examine that past and, and try to recapture the future and really bring our own uh, you know create and construct a new voice for the future, too. So, you know, it's, it's so I'm taking it from my perspective on how how was it for me to to play the role of a minority forecaster in a futures think tank um, called the Institute for the Future that's right. now based in Palo Alto. Okay. And and uh, and when I was there, you know, they they did work for Fortune 500 companies and. Nonprofits and some government agencies, and you know when I got there, their main clientele were were corporations, and the futures that they were constructing were, you know, seemed pretty upper middle class um, and elite types of futures where I didn't see a lot of people of color in. So it just made me wonder. Well, you know how how do you uh, how do you include the future, um, especially for African-Americans in this country? Uh, now, to give them justice, they've expanded their range of the futures they're looking at. They're, they are doing more. They're trying to be more inclusive, which I'm glad to say. And okay. it's still a drop of the bucket. You know, there's, there's, a, you know, there's, a, there's a few futures institutes out there, and uh, we need more of them to look at at the future. So we have a new think tank that we've also I've created with Rinaldo Anderson, who's the leader of the Black Caucus at the, um, a leader of the African American Communication Studies at, at the National Communication Association. And mm. I've been working with him to create a think tank um, that's called Astro Blackness. And uh, we're looking at, you know, how, how, to, how to create and research urban futures and futures for African Americans too, and African and Black people in general. So um, that's an exciting project. So it sounds like it. <laughs> so uh, I'm working in that field and uh, in that area, and then uh, we also have a. I'm working with some other folks on a special issue for a journal called ETC, and we're looking at. Um, another term called future types and kind of like looking at well 
what are the kind of stereotypes of the future that are circulating in science fiction and how can we remake them? And so we call that idea future type. And uh, kind of combines prototyping. Um, it also is based on Lisa Nakamura's idea of a cyber type where she looked at um, stereotypes going online. And so she called those cyber types. But now we're, we're pushing it up a notch to look at look across time. So we're calling it future types. Future types, so yeah. So I'm future typing right as I'm talking to you. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's some of the main areas I'm, I've been working on. And then uh, we also have uh, oh, Ronaldo Anderson and his uh, partner Charles Jones. Uh, they've created an anthology about Afrofuturism called Afrofuturism 2.0 that's going to be out in April or May. And I have a chapter in there um, based on, it's called Playing a Minority Forecaster. Where am I in this feature, Stuart Brand? So, so you know, these are very uh, great areas of research that you're, you're doing. And what have your research or come up with so far to identify African Americans in the future. Are you projecting 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, or even further beyond that, 5,000 years? Yeah, well, we're, you know, we have a project at Cal State East Bay called the Long-Term and Futures Thinking Project. And um, we're looking at those time horizons of 25 years out a hundred years out and even to 5,000 years out. Mm-hmm. And, okay. um, and in terms of the long-term future, my students uh, did a project looking at a Starship novel yes. called Fire. And uh, and aboard this Starship, the, the, the crews have been segregated. You know, the workers are called greys. The uh, police officers or enforcers are called reds. The managers are called blues. And the greens who command the ship are, are called greens. And they've been separated for about 400 years. So we kind of we use that as a metaphor to look at issues of race and how race might morph and continue in other ways. And so we look at it from that perspective, you know, and how, how do we create strategies to break up these types of caste systems and uh, so my students recently did a project looking at 20, 25 years out to the 2040 looking at augmentation mm. and how augmentation might evolve and the basic forecast question we were asking them to answer was when would employers require cognitive augmentation of their employees in 2040 which means you know, it could be as simple as, uh, as, you know, an advanced type of wearable, like the Apple Watch, or even a chip implant, you know, that connects to your brain and gives you the powers of augmented ability, intellectual abilities. Okay. You know, abilities that information, abilities, you know, so, like, your iPhone is a type of augmented device, but we're talking about augmented devices that might be implanted in you. Um or more securely wearable. So yeah, it, it kind of makes sense because even right now, you know, anytime you pick up your phone and say you 
you you know you want to go ahead and find a location like say i want to leave san leandro and make it to uh cal state east bay i type in you know cal state east bay do a search on google the first thing it actually does is it actually locates exactly where you are and and then of course it gives you the coordinates on on how to get up to Cal State East Bay. So in a way, you're kind of already being tracked at any given time. Uh, I know that I I consciously actually turn off the um, the GPS uh, signal on my phone because if I don't, I can be tracked anywhere uh, where I'm going. Um, and then furthermore, if you're actually you know you're doing searches. Uh, you know, through Google, it just seems that whatever computer you're on, that search would always be right there or, you know, a whole history of everything that you've searched for. Um, and then uh, I guess the marketers, they've gotten real clever with the technology where they can start popping up things that you normally use. So are yeah. you talking about in terms of things like that, uh, Dr. Brooks? Yeah, we're talking about, you know, where, you know, you might, you, in order to keep your job, you might need to have a implanted chip in some part of your body that would be able to um, enable you to process information better, to connect to the internet faster, um, to be under surveillance 24-7, to record the history of your life. Um, you know, uh, there's a great uh, new series on called Black Mirror, and one of the episodes is called An Entire History of You. And it explores this exact same idea where a chip is implanted and it records the lives of people um, their entire lives. And people, uh, you know, look back at their lives with each other in moments in, in time to kind of celebrate and laugh about it. But it's also used for more, you know, sinister things where security guards at an airport are looking at and checking your entire history to see if you are, you know, doing something legal. Um, right, right, yeah. A, they kind of do that already. A, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so we look at, well, you know, what, is, what would be the augmentation divide? You know, mm -hmm. how could it be used by, by you know, the, a, a dominant uh, elite minority or majority to oppress another you know so would it be you know would it be white people who who would be augmented to you know and have the benefit of these technologies to further oppress people of color you know or would it be a, a matter of people rise up and take advantage of these augmentation devices in more benign ways you right. know so you know so my students did a page and a half story about their professional lives in 2040 uh, exploring this question and uh, and they're they're pretty good I want to I want to I want to publish some of them as a, as a blog or something they're really interesting and uh, so we taught them a specific uh, forecasting methodology to come up with this story and so that's how we explore race in the future by looking at ways that we could be resegregated along different lines you know similar to Gattaca the movie that was based mm -hmm. on genetic so mm -hmm. that's the way that we, we look at it and then you know how do you how do you take 
take power back at the same time. And, uh, you know, so one student came up with the idea of an anti-augmentation activist movement and, uh, <laughs> and explored that. So, so it's, it's really interesting to look at, you know, the ways that the future continues to grapple with issues of race and division and, um, you know, who, how do we, how do we continue on a progressive path um, without losing our humanity? And you know it's interesting that you 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 say that because I'm not sure if you read the article uh, uh, through National Geographics, and it, the basic thing I guess the title of the article was uh, National Geographic determined what Americans will look like in 2050, and it's beautiful. And basically, what they're saying is that basically. Uh, the world will be, I mean, you know, the average American, they will be of uh, biracial culture. Everybody have different, just different uh, skin hues, different textures of hair. Really, the, the big difference that I've seen in the article is that everybody's eyes are just, just bluish green, green, gold, all kinds of just stuff. But there's no solid African-American uh, type of person or there's not a true Caucasian uh, person here. Everybody is all mixed, and they even came up with um, how um, you know mixing some of the names like Blackenese or Filipino or Chinkolese uh-huh. or or uh, Korean There's things like that where the uh, U.S. Census Bureau they said that by that time that the world, well, the United States at that time will be extremely mixed. So it's really kind of interesting to kind of see what some of these other news outlets, they're trying to, they're they're attempting to project what at least what people will look like, uh, you know, at least, uh, you know, in the year 2050. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, some of the, some of the things, you know, we, we, we look at in terms of, or want to look at, you know. Um, and, and how will this society uh, get along? Um, you know, what, how how will people be um, grouping with and segregating themselves or not segregating themselves? Would they still be? Will that you know even with this interracial uh, mix and multi-ethnic um, variety? You know, will division find another outlet? You know, along issues of you know economic status or yeah and, and that's, that's it right there it, it's, it, it's you know i'm not surprised that you came to that that point right there but in the article here it does say that poverty remains a barrier of social mobility and a consequent opportunities to interact with a diverse range of people so definitely that will be a major factor in the future you know the poor people they'll definitely be segregated from the people probably in the middle class and then of course those folks will probably be segregated from the people who are extremely rich yeah um you know and, it, and it, there's there's folks you know there's folks who also look at it more optimistically too like peter mm-hmm. diamanda who wrote mm-hmm. a book called the Black. He said, you know, um, our rising standards will continue to, to rise. Our living standards will continue to rise. Um, you know, uh, people will come out of poverty 
So, I mean, if we think of that, you know, extremely optimistic scenario combined with a more pessimistic tone, maybe we'll land somewhere in the middle, you know? Right. Uh, I mean, at least, you know, um, that's, that's the hope that is that that if we you know continue to talk about these issues of power and issues of disparity, mm-hmm. that that we become more than drops in the bucket. That we actually really make people aware of of the policies that we're pursuing um, to avoid mistakes. You know, um, and and have ha- you know, for instance, there's a this idea of a guaranteed income is circulating both among Democrats and Republicans and internationally. Um, you know, what if you gave someone a guaranteed annual income as a base so they don't have to worry about, you know, education, health care. They can use it to as a platform to be more creative, you know. So that's what I'm interested in. How do we create more, more creativity and innovation in our society and allow people to do those things rather than having to flip burgers at McDonald's? Right, you know? right. And, and then, and then, really, also to add on to that, Doctor Brooks, is that you know how can people, you know, have the opportunities, or actually, how can I put this? Get believe in themselves enough to really go out and do what they want, as exposed, as opposed to really depending on you know my first job have to be going to McDonald's and putting the application there, or going to a Walmart to get a job there or at one of the yogurt stands, you know, what can we do for our youth to inspire them to go ahead and create their own path for themselves, you know, and don't and let them understand that they don't have to be restricted to maybe that $10.25 per hour, that that the opportunities are limitless and the amount of money that they could potentially make is endless as well. Uh, it definitely seems in, you know, uh, in a lot of the communities that we're in here that um, we, we, we try to inspire our kids to you know, go get a job, get an education and, you know, go work for someone else and let them depend, let them determine how much you make, um, you know, on a yearly basis. And then on top of that, we have our government, you know, taking, you know, a, you know, a, a good percentage of what we make um, in, in addition to that. So um, I, I, I like I like that thought. Where where did you um, uh, come up? Where, where did you find that research at, Doctor uh, Brooks, regarding um, you know everybody just get a set amount of you know salary? Well, you know it's funny that you asked me that too. Um, well, when I was growing up, uh, it was in during my middle school uh, years, probably seventh grade. I, re- I read a book by um, Mac Reynolds, a science, a science fiction author. And it was called Equality in the Year 2000. And in it, it really, it was it was a book uh, written in the 1970s. And it envisioned a society much like we have today in some ways, um, where the people looked at a thing that was similar to the internet and they got information. And but it was also different in that it really looked at it hypothesized that by the year 2000 people would have a guaranteed annual income mm. uh, that people and that what you did was only only a certain small percentage of the, of the population actually had real work because of automation 
and everything like that, um, people were selected to work through a meritocratic system, a meritocracy. And the, and the, and the rest of us um, actually lived, well, lived, we had quasi-forms of work where we pursued our passions and hobbies and explored mm-hmm. knowledge. Okay. And uh, it, was, it was kind of an interesting take on the Greek conception of leisure and, 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 being, and what being a citizen meant. Because in Greece, mm. being citizen meant that, according to Aristotle, was that you, the slaves did the real, the, 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 the hard labor, and citizens philosophized and created plays and theater, you know, became cultured, learned about the world. So this idea of equality in the year 2000 was trying to envision a society like that. Mm. And then, so, so I read that book and... But it's only until just last year where I saw this idea gaining more circulation in the press, where um, I think it was some people in Switzerland were discussing it as something to implement in Swiss society, and then it had gained some traction here in the States. And, I, and I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure there's, there's been a, a movement of people discussing it for a while, too. Um, who could have been inspired by that very book I read, you know, as a, as a middle school student. Um, you know, so it's the idea of creating broader safety nets. And, you know, Europe has uh, instances of this already through, you know, high taxation, but free education in healthcare. Yeah. So for, so you can, you can say in a sense, Europe, Europeans already have some type of uh, guaranteed annual income because they don't have to worry about health and education, you know, and, and that's, that's pretty much what, what the emphasis is, is if you give people a firm foundation, then how can they flourish when they don't have to worry about the basic necessities, you know, and I love yeah, that Yeah, that's idea. a great question. Yeah, that's an excellent idea, and it's something like we try to create for our children, right? We're trying to create a good foundation for them so that they don't have to you know, work as hard as, you know, we probably did, uh, you know, growing up or probably face some of the challenges that our parents faced when uh, we were being brought up. Um, so so I, I like that concept and I would like to really see where it really goes uh, from a, a true cultural perspective of uh, within the American culture. Because it really yeah. seems at this point it's really all about capitalism and, you know, it, you know, let, let's see how many kids we can, uh, you know, how many kids that they can, you know, market to to bring them into, you know, the uh, capitalistic system in terms of let's give them the work, let's let's let them depend on us for health care, for their retirement, and so on and so forth. Um, I, I like the idea of you know giving the kids the idea for them to come up and. You know, if if they want to go ahead and uh, pursue, um, you know, a particular area of life, they should be able to have that freedom to do that without having, you know, a mortgage over their head or all, all this uh, this idea of always continuously have to work in, in order to uh, be considered uh, successful in our society here. And that, yeah. that's, that's very interesting. So you, you touched on when you were growing up. Where did you grow up at, Dr. Brooks? Oh, I grew up in, um, well, first, I grew up in um, Baldwin Hills in Los Angeles until I was about nine. Um, and that was the mainly African-American area of Los Angeles. Um, 
And then from there, I moved to the Fairfax district of L.A., closer to Beverly Hills and some of the, you know, um, shishi spots in L.A. But uh, that was the, um, also the Fairfax district was the primary Jewish area of uh, Los Angeles. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm African-American, Latino and Jewish. So um, I bring that, those heritages with me. Um, so... So I, I grew up in that area uh, of L.A. When, when I turned nine and, you know, wonderful multi-ethnic area still, too, because um, along with the Jews, you had um, a lot of different immigrants, families there, too, Koreans, you know, uh, Indians, Russians, uh, just a, a wonderful blend of people. So, you know, you, I... Uh, I definitely had the feeling of kind of coming out of a more ghettoized area into a more multi-ethnic area and more affluent area. So I, I, yeah. I, I did have experienced that transition, um, and I, I attended a Jewish community center where I belonged to a, a drama group that was part of the Jewish Community Center, um, part of our after-school care, uh, where we did Shakespearean plays and Broadway mu- musicals. And that's where I learned about Shakespeare and was able to kind of understand Shakespeare by acting it out. And um, and I became more interested in issues of performance and, you know, how, do you, how are things performed and, you know, really got me interested in communication. My father was a writer. And okay. he had set up a foundation for struggling black artists in the 1970s. Mm. Um, so he was very proud, always very proud of his signature and proud of his work. And um, had produced a play about the black experience in Vietnam. And uh, he even got to interview Amos and Andy. And looking wow. at, you know, um, so he, he got a lot accomplished. Uh, on that so I you know I, I remember him being interviewed on the morning show too a local morning show and so those are some of the things that inspired me to continue this art of writing and then combine it with scholarship um, and so education was definitely stressed in my household I mean in terms of yes. you know not in that like, you must go to college kind of way but more like that just in their practice this is what they did my father was a writer my mother read all the time just a, mm-hmm. a very astute reader, and uh, and then my experiences at the Jewish Community Center were very formative as well. So we we learned a lot about um, world history. Um, and I got even got to go to England um, in London to uh, to kind of say, see Shakespeare in action, and uh, right. where at the was born in Stratford upon Avon. So, How old were you when you traveled overseas? I was, um, I just turned 15. Okay. So that was my first, first trip overseas. And, um, and that was, you know, really, uh, fantastic. Just being able to experience another country and, and, um, you know, just see, see what, what England was all about, you know. Unfortunately, we had to listen to a lot of, um, ABBA songs. I mean, ABBA's not bad, but you know. <laughs> and then Diana Ross was. They were. 
there, were, there weren't a lot of musical outlets and the musical outlets that were there they just kept playing the same music over and over again but um but i have to say there's nothing like being able to go to the west end theater of london and see you know these famous musicals um i saw um christopher reeves and uh anthony hopkins in a play called death trap you know and when you see these people having playing these powerful roles you know you just you fall in love with the act of communication and theater you know what i mean yes absolutely so no as a, a commun- go ahead sir oh no um what were you going to say no and and i know that the the reason why i've studied communication is for that reason itself is because you you look at a lot of things on television, you listen to a lot of things through podcasts or through the radio, and you want to understand, you know, exactly what's being said or or how it's or or I'm very intrigued about how it's actually being communicated because there's just so many different styles of communication. Um, it's, you know, it's either through your visual, through your ear, um, in a lot of ways, either through you know touch as well. So I, I can definitely uh, relate to you uh, from that perspective. Well, and that's where I became interested in new media, too, because yeah. I wanted to see, um, you know, when you when you see a science fiction show or a movie, you know, they're acting out um, and reflecting values in the present and projecting them to the future and seeing, you know, so basically they're performing the future in front of your eyes. Yes. You know, they're performing scenario of the future. So I became really interested in in how we perform the future and how that gets circulated and, and absorbed in our culture. And so that's pretty much been my, my uh, purpose is to look at those performances and how they get circulated and how those visions get created. So, um, you know, I, I, I have to say, I mean... Once I saw Wired Magazine when it hit the newsstands in 1992 or 93, I said, wow, you know, I want to do the things that I'm reading about in those pages. I want to be involved, meet those folks who are creating new technologies and exploring how culture works with these technologies. And I think that was more what I was interested in. Not necessarily the minutia of programming, although I am interested in that. But I really wanted to see the, the, the nexus of culture and technology, mm. um, what you do with it. And so that's when I decided to go to go back to graduate school and got my master's in information and technology. Yes. And then decided to apply for my PhD in communication, looking at new media. And so by 1995, I was able to get an internship with an uh, uh, incubator of new technologies called Interval Research Corporation. Um, that was co-founded, I mean, it was co-founded by Paul Allen. It was actually founded by Paul Allen, okay. who, was the who was the co-founder of Microsoft. And mm-hmm. I got hired as an intern for about, um, oh, it was almost a year. And I got to meet um, people that I had read about in Wired Magazine. Uh, one of them, I remember this woman named Brenda Laurel. She's well-known and digital circles because she created one of the first digital games for girls called Purple Moon. And what she inspired me to look at was, well, you know, how can we create games 
for minorities, games for African Americans. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. create um, digital technologies that spoke to our experiences. You know, and so um, so she really inspired me. Had a chance to meet with her and um, you know write about and research what they were doing at Interval Research Corporation because they they brought together artists, technologists, people interested in culture to create new forms of media. Right. And uh, and so so it's like going to Disneyland as an intern, you know, getting to to play around with some of these new technologies. Um, one photographer had created a diorama, a photographic diorama of being in Timbuktu. So you kind of felt like you were immersed in, in walking along with, as the photographs were swirling around you. And, um, you know, on life-size projections, and you were walking on a, on a, on a kind of conveyor belt. Um, that was pretty... And so then I also got invited to uh, research the Institute for the Future. Um, someone who had attended a, a So party. was this back in 94 as well? It was, uh, it was 95 and 96. Okay. And in 1996, I got invited to study the Institute for the Future. And so I met with them and realized that they too were telling, they were actually telling stories. They weren't really making technology. They were making fiction, um, creative and informed fiction for, to be digested by multinational corporations and government agencies looking into the future. And I was like, wow. So the clients would pay $65,000 to get a series of reports, to become a member, to attend their conferences, to actually delve into what the future would look like and they started doing skits about the future and I I was an intern with them from 98 to 2001 and I performed in some of these skits too so I actually became the an artist you know uh, <laughs> demonstrating the future how cool is that <laughs> yeah that was very cool you know <laughs> to go from the point where I was looking at Wired Magazine and then thinking what if to being a performer and and doing the exact thing that I had read about, I was like, that's pretty cool. You know? Wow. Uh, so, uh, so I actually ended up doing my dissertation on the about the Institute for the Future, and it's called Materializing the Future and Looking at Play and Work. Because I was, you know, I was interested in how they used forms of play to kind of entertain their clients um, and to give them digestible materials to, to think about the future. Because since the future is so abstract, you have to materialize it in an entertaining form um, that the clients themselves could use to tell stories about. You know, and so some of those stories... Yeah. Can you give us an example of that? So, say there's a storyline. Could it be something like, you know, you're, you're kind of uh, like kind of acting out a scene where you're probably in the year uh, 2250 and, you know, you're you're at going to school or something like that? Can, can you well, kind yeah, of, I mean, uh, so, yeah, they, they were looking, looking at the future of TV, for instance. Okay. So, um... So one example would be, well, let me even give you, I'll give you a couple of examples. So one of them was okay. about the future of TV, and they had, 
let's see, two two girls who were cousins or something, or friends, best friends, and they were looking at the same TV show together, but they were um, they were miles, thousands of miles away from each other, um, but they had avatars. Um, I see. Robotic, you know, programs, software agents that would do things on their behalf. Hmm. And, um, and I come in as the older brother, and I'm, I have dreadlocks, I, I have, um, I'm an extreme sports playing macho kind of kid, and I'm coming in and I interrupt their viewing together with my avatar, who I call Dreadlock. And I tell my avatar to shut down their TV so I can watch my own show. You know, it's on the big family screen and I want to watch my show. And so, and so the girls get upset and, you know, tell on me. But, I mean, that's one example. Yes, you know? yes, yes. And, yes, that was uh, interesting. Um, another example was the Institute did, um, this is in 2000, they did a show where all the, where the Institute researchers pretended to do a, a newscast from the year 2010. And they were explaining all the innovations that came um, between 2000 and 2010. But what was interesting was that as they were delivering their newscast, they got interrupted by um, other people who hacked into their broadcast telling their own version of the news. Mm. So you had a blogger from China, uh, that inter a hacker from China that interrupted their broadcast and was saying what China's needs were. You had a minority uh, hacker who was talking about being an entrepreneur. Um, and what I think they really got right was how the news got decentralized yes. and corrupted so that you had more voices in the mix about what happens in the everyday. And uh, and they really got that right, you know, when you think of things like the Drudge Report and, you know, the proliferation of blogs and, and the disruption yes. of news. So, um, so that was, you know, a really, a really good example that stays in my mind. Um, but also the idea of these skits that talked about the proliferation of sensors and and code doing things on your behalf, um, and I think they that they got some of these things right, and that they're just starting like to it. do now too. Yeah, yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Especially the skit where you said the two young ladies they were uh, watching a, a television show, but they're miles away. Um, you know, that can easily be done today, you know, through like, you know, on the go HBO apps through your telephone. Um, or, you know, if you have like some kind of, uh, like we have UVerse uh, at home right now, which is through AT&T. And if I want to record something right now and, you know, my, my kid want to watch something where he's in LA, all he has to do is just tap, tap into that application. He can watch it right then and there. Um, and then if I want to go ahead and, you know, interfere with what he's, he's watching, I can easily just, you know, shut, shut the TV off or turn off the uh, security options in, in the application itself. Um, and, and then with regards to the decentralization of, uh, people's version of the news, that is definitely, uh, alive and well, uh, today as we speak, like you said, with the, um, with with everyone such as myself, you know, you know, uh, creating their own podcasts, creating their own blogs, 
Um, you have a lot of individuals out here even, you know, going out into the communities with their own uh, cameras, you know, uh, you know, doing their own news reporting. So I think you guys are right on. And it's very interesting that you were working on this stuff uh, back in 90, 95, 96. And, and, and today we're we're living in that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the idea that you can have entertainment on demand, you know, was, was a really key thing that they foresaw. And, um, and you know, interesting things about the idea of looking at narratives, too, that research that Institute for the Future has explored and other, scholar, and other scholars have explored is looking at the power of telling a story actually can heal you so people mm -hmm. in a psychotherapy group if they write a story that show themselves empowered actually have better mental health so if we you know as a culture can tell um empowering stories of ourselves in the future we will improve the collective mental health of our society you know mm -hmm. um even if you, this idea too, um, that's gaining more traction is, if, you know, you give cameras to people who lived in underprivileged neighborhoods to mm -hmm. document their experiences, they begin to take more ownership about their neighborhoods and become more active in the future of those neighborhoods too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's this, so that's where I really continually come back to the power of a good story. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's a, a researcher at Tel Aviv University, Yuval Harari, who just wrote a book called Sapiens. And he talks about that one of the distinguishing features of our of being human is the ability to tell a story. That most of the other creatures on the planet cannot do that, but we do it exceptionally well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the ability to tell that story and to circulate it among large groups of people um, makes us more flexibly adaptive to the planet. So that just, you know, really confirmed my whole interest in performance to begin with and performing the future in particular. So, Dr. Brooks, right now, do do you still uh, work with the work work with the um, Institute um, of uh, the let's see here you said when you were back in 95 96 when you were interning um, for the one company uh it wasn't wired right but it was another it was, uh, it was interval research corporation right um, are you still connected with them in some way well um so i'm connected with the institute for the future uh by uh friends who work there um in fact and also our forecasting consultant for our project, she used to work for the Institute for the Future. Her name is Andrea Severi, and she started her own consulting firm looking at um, the future of education. And so, uh, but I keep in touch with folks at the Institute for the Future as well. And, and you know, so I'm working, uh, you know, I attend, some, I attend some of their events. I continue to do research about them, and I'm, in the process of completing a book about them as well. The, um, the, re the, the, the reason uh, I ask is because I'm, I'm curious of what the next wave of technology will be. It seemed that, you know, uh, you know, 
to, uh, what, 20 years ago in 95, where you, you guys were projecting, you know, what technology would look like and on-demand entertainment would look like. You know, you, got, you have any idea of what, what, what that technology will look like 20 years from, you know, 2015? Well, you know, the Institute for the Future did um, a project on the future of persuasion and, you know, looked at the ways that games and other types of technologies would really um, persuade us to be more healthy, um, Mm -hmm. to find out more about what we, you know, like and dislike in terms of market success. Um, But, you know, in terms of health, and that's going to be a real big, I mean, there's already a big demand for those types of devices. you know, the Apple Watch with its health technologies is coming out. So, I mean, I think the idea in terms of wearables and more augmented devices that track you to tell you more information about yourself um, is really going to be bigger. Yes. And also um, technologies that may inform you more about, about your social group or the group that you talk with um, you know, it could track the productivity of your social group, for, for example. Um, another thing, too, is augmentation, you know, especially with the Oculus Rift being acquired by Facebook. And um, that, you know, so virtual reality will be taking off um, soon. Um, so... So they look, you know, they've, they've been looking at the future of persuasion. They've been looking at the, also the future of health. So, you know, look for our food to become augmented in ways as well. Where, I mean, they, I've even seen a, a more healthier Coke being marketed now as well. So, yes. you know, you'll foods that will have more uh, healthier stuff embedded in them as, as well. So, um so there's projects like that, that they've been looking at. They've also been looking at the future of cities. So looking at how whole cities become more augmented themselves and that cities fill different needs. You know, it's kind of like looking at Singapore and a city like that with no resources, but has become a technological hub of the world mm-hmm. um, and a pretty well-run city. It's, it's, it's the, the founding leader of, of Singapore just died recently. But, you know, so looking at, at smart cities, you know, how do cities yeah. become smarter? How do they um, take care of their inhabitants? More people will be living in cities than any other form of habitation on the planet um, by 2050. So yeah. cities are becoming more important. So the Institute for the Future did a report about the... Um, uh, about the future of cities, um, but you know, we're also, I'm working also with the Long Now Foundation too. Um, that was founded by Brian Eno and Stuart Brand, and uh, and they bring together folks to talk about the long-term future from the sciences and arts, and they give talks um, at the San Francisco Jazz Foundation uh, Center, mm-hmm. that is, and at Fort Mason where their headquarters are. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a lawn called the Interval. Um, and in fact, Paul Sappho, who used to be at the Institute for the Future, and now he's the 
uh, chair of our advisory board for our long now um, and future thinking project at Cal State East Bay. Paul Staffel is giving a talk next week on what he calls the creator economy. And basically, the creator economy is, you know, like the economy where we were just talking about, where we're making our own, uh, our own things in terms of do-it-yourself uh, work mm-hmm. and that movement, the Maker Fair movement, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of own um, content, you know, through podcasts and blogs and websites and TV shows. And so, um, so this creator economy... You know, what unexpected effects will it have going forward? You know, so, so we're, we're in that disrupt, that period of disruption right now. Um, where, where the creator economy is taking off. Um, and people are finding where they can, you know, have these skill sets that they can generate economic, economic self-sufficiency with, too. Yes, yes. That's yes. part of it. Mm-hmm. Um... Henry Jenkins wrote a book a few years ago called The um, Spreadable Media. And it looks at that very idea, too, of the creator economy as well. You know, how, how we're creating more more media when, when consumers become producers of media. Um, and how do companies work with consumers in a new way, you know, where they have to include the consumer voice in the actual means of production. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's a that's a really important um, step and and series of innovations that will be happening. Dr. Brooks, where where do you find the energy? You know, every time I talk to you, you're always quoting these books from all over the world. All of these great uh, writers of these books, or, or all this very intriguing research that you're that, that you follow up on or all of these organizations that you're affiliated where do you find the energy to you know stay on top of all of this stuff and and, and on top of that you you teach classes and well, the great thing and all that good stuff right well the great thing about teaching classes and in teaching the um, forecasting to my students and organizational innovation is that I actually have to do research about this stuff you know and it's part of my job um, so if I if I'm going to tell my students to think about the future then I have to do it myself yes too so I have to take on the very exercises that I ask them to do and so you know I get a I have a handy app that I fully rely on called Flipboard and it's a it's a it's an aggregate feeder of news and information and I just download that app, and within five minutes, boy, do I feel like I'm one of the smartest people on the planet. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it really, you know, and, 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 it, and it goes, you know, it, it picks out what you're interested in, and it feeds you information about that. So, you know, if I'm interested in augmentation, I get a series of articles looking at that that I can deliver and talk to, with, uh, to my students. Um, but, you know, and also good old public media. Uh, NPR, um, there's really good... Um, uh, KQED or um, public media programs like uh, To the Best of Our Knowledge uh, to interview interesting folks to On the Media who talks about the future of news and current news. Um, so all of these you know, places give me inspiration to do further research on what they're talking about and, and, and who they're interviewing. So um, 
And then strong networks. You know, you surround yourself with great minds and people will feed you information. You know, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. part of our spreadable media uh, culture now. So, yes. you know, I'm talking to forecasting consultant. She's telling me about things she's learning. I'm talking to my colleagues in the department. Um, I'm talking to, you know, colleagues in the field of communication. There's a great blog that I, I, I contribute to called um, Culture Digitally. And that's a fantastic blog that brings together people who are interested in the nexus of, of culture and, and digital production. And so uh, my, uh, my friends Hector Postigo and Carlton Gillespie, uh, who's a professor at Cornell in communication, um, they started that blog with uh, funds from the National Science Foundation. Okay. And it's taken off. You know, it's, it's, the blog is taking off. Um, it's been around for a few years, and uh, it's gained more circulation. So, um, you know, I, I debuted an excerpt of my, um, my uh, playing a minority forecaster in that blog, and it got retweeted, you know, a number of times. And so I was yes. like, you know, so, so that, that's how I get that's how I get the energy to because you know once you once you invest in in researching something, uh, it comes back to, to to boost you with more energy. Yes. You know? and, and people remember what you're interested in, so it becomes reinforcing. But again, you know, it's part of the description of the job. You know, as being a professor, that's what I have to do. Is uh, if I'm preparing a lesson plan, I have to look and research about it and, uh, and you know, try to deliver that to my students. Um, so that's the fun of it. You know, how do I, how do I inform, inform them and make them laugh at the same time? And, 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 and let me just say, just as a student of yours, been through a few of your classes, and I, I, as a, from a student perspective, as a person um, who really enjoys learning, I really enjoy the type of energy and a type of um, the method of teaching that you bring to the class. You, you, you make sure that it's interactive, where you know where you know the students are able able to collaborate collaborate with one another, um, and then actually play out a lot of these themes. Um, you're, you're not that type of professor that you know you put a word up on the board and then you're just going to go ahead and lecture about that word the entire time or a, a certain type of theory um you're you're very um engaging and you welcome um you know feedback and you know uh ideas from the class and and and, and within the class it just it really sparks a um an environment of of learning of, of interest of uh, keeping people engaged and that's one of uh, the, the reasons why I really appreciate uh, you as uh, one of my professors because that's that's what you bring, and I, I just wanted to uh, you know uh, highlight that that to you uh, right right now. But what challenges do you face in in academia? You you work as a professor at Cal State East Bay or in the area of future thought. You know, when I talk to a lot of people about, you know, the, the idea of Afrofuturism or the idea of, you know, really trying to plan for the next 50, 100 or maybe even 1,000 years, they look at me like, are you serious right now, man? I'm just trying to uh, get through my work week right now. <laughs> well, I, I want to thank you about, uh, you know, your acknowledgement, acknowledgement of, of my teaching methods, um, too, uh, 
you know, as a student for a long time, <laughs> I, I just realized how I want to be taught. To yes. want to be engaged, I want to be entertained, I want to uh, have an active voice, uh, you know, and so just uh, absorbing that as a student and, and reshaping it. Um, and uh, and I really, you know, I, I love to have students like yourself, too, who are actually putting into practice some of the things that we're talking about. Absolutely. Like Yes. <laughs> so, yes. So, you know, in terms of the challenges of academia, um, yeah, you know, one, you know, one of the things that I have faced is is people wanting to understand well, what what does futures research mean, what does Afrofuturism mean, and um, and trying to get their wrap their heads around it, you know, because it is an elite few of people, you know, elite group of people who do this stuff. And, um, but what I wanted to remind people is that, is that corporations, governments are planning our future. And mm -hmm. wouldn't we like to have a voice in that? You know, don't we want to know what's going on? And they're investing millions of dollars into it. Don't you think we should know what's going on? Try to figure out how to, how to come up with, um, scenarios of the future ourselves. Yes. So, you know, so in terms of that, you know, Gaining legitimacy about this has been a struggle, um, particularly as a person of color, um, because, you know, sometimes academia just wants you to study um, sad stories yes. about people yes. that have emphasizing what could be better, more empowering visions of ourselves, you know, and that's kind of what I want to help promote as well you know not just that we're all in prison or we're starving or or you know that's important but i want to include it in a in a more empowering context absolutely context. so and you're definitely so that, doing that as well thank you <laughs> so you know what what happened too was that um we got in touch with a private donor who actually created a robot to help um, pour DNA samples into tubes. He actually created a, I can't tell you his name, but because he wants to remain anonymous, but he created a robot, a robotic invent, invention to an, help analyze DNA. And wow. he, he gave us uh, the funds to create this project of long-term and futures thinking at Cal State East Bay, okay. and it really confirmed and legitimized the work that I've been doing for the past 10 years. Yes. And working with our forecasting consultants and our people at the STEM Center at Cal State East Bay, particularly Stephanie Couch, um, who, who's our co-PI on this, and she helps lead, lead the uh, Center for STEM Education at Cal State East Bay. She was really inspired by this, and and so now we're we're looking at ways to include other faculty in it, and you know so so gaining legitimacy has been a struggle, but we finally gained legitimacy, and then we have um a great chair of the communication department, Gail Young, yes. and new professors to our department who are really looking at the future of multimedia, and so so. So they, they have the vision 
Um, but you know, it is a it is a political struggle being in academia. You know, you do have to, you know, know who your allies are and and gain consensus among your allies um, to really move something forward. Mm-hmm. So. Um, we have a new school of arts and media that combines our communication department with theater and art and music and dance. Um, and we're actually looking at creating a minor in innovation and creativity. Yes. And so that's, that's really exciting. And we're going to um, offer courses about the future and storytelling of the future. Um, as part of this minor and as part of our graduate um, our, our graduate master's degree program. So, um, but you know, also the issue of color in terms of having and carving your voice in academe is difficult too because there's few people of color. And, you know, you, you kind of think, you have to think twice about what you're doing sometimes too about you know, and people's uh, rejection of your ideas or unacceptance of your ideas. You know, is it? You know, you're, you're thinking, well, is that coming from a legitimate standpoint of a difference in scholarship, or is it coming from that they have a problem with someone having a strong voice who's a person of color? You know, right? And and uh, you know, I may have some legitimate co- differences with some colleagues. Very, you know one or two colleagues I could think of at the moment. But other than that, though, there's a wide consensus and acceptance about the type of work I do. And and it has been, you know, it has been a struggle to gain that voice. I mean, even as a scholar, you know, to gain your voice is not automatic and it does take years to shape your voice. Um, and then put, that, put an overlay of discrimination and prior discrimination on top of that, it might take a little bit longer. Um, so, but I, but I'm I'm glad to say that our Department of Communication is in its best shape that it's been in in years, and we're 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 going to do good things. We're going to offer a degree online eventually, um, in in digital media. That's great. And this Cal State East Bay as a school, uh, from my perspective, is just an excellent school. I I achieved both my undergrad graduate's degree there as well as my master's degree there and you know at some point in the future I'm definitely considering um, you know becoming possibly one of your PhD brethren up there Dr. Brooks for for students who are interested for people who are interested in you know researching um, future thought or or future innovations or future technology or Afrofuturisms or even becoming a professor um, at, at a school like Cal State East Bay or any, any school, what steps would you suggest they take to get to the level that you're, that you're at today, Dr. Brooks? Well, yeah, and I, I mean, I love that you're even considering becoming a PhD student. That's fantastic. Um, you know, I think I think one of the biggest things is to is to read good books and to and to write well. Like learning how to write is one of the most important things you can do, um, and to and to be willing to constantly improve your writing is important because that's what I've had to do. You know, I've, I, I mean, I was a strong writer when I graduated from high school, but you know, I learned that I learned that there was just room for even more improvement. You know. Um, 
to really hone your voice, um, to read well-written pieces of writing. You know, um, I had I had uh, people telling us to read the New York Times because that was a well-written newspaper, yeah. and and you know, the, and the New Yorker, and you know, magazines and newspapers and good books that you know show you different styles of writing, genres of writing. Um, so, and then, and also, you know, to become well-informed because of that as well. So I think also networking is really important too. So mm -hmm. um, finding people who can, you can be your allies and support you as you apply to graduate school um, is really important too. And, um, you know, so I, when I applied to the UC, uh, UC San Diego program in communication, um, I hadn't thought that there were only about like an 8% acceptance rate. I wow. hadn't really thought about, it, you know, <laughs> and then it turned out like, uh, well, I was pretty good. I was pretty lucky to get in there, you know, and, <laughs> and so, um, to understand that and then, you know, how do you, how do you meet those challenges? How do you, how do you do your best work? And, um, and also, you know, apply to a number of graduate programs that can potentially meet your needs as well. Yes. But, um, you know, UC San Diego is a great school, University of Washington, uh, Stanford graduate program, and uh, University, uh, Cal Berkeley has a great program in performance studies too, and, 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 a, and a digital news program now, master's mm -hmm. program. Um, but yeah, I think I think really it comes down to the writing, also networking, uh, in terms of getting to know the scholarly organizations like the National Communication Association, and also the International uh, Communication Association. Um, those are good platforms. Um, I lead a division of the National Communication Association called uh, Communication in the Future. And uh, I've been a, I've been the, the chair of that division for about three years, and really learned, you know, that you could create interesting panels that could generate scholarship. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so that's that's been fun to do. And if you can do that as a graduate student and network like that, then you really set up a good platform to to. Um, bootstrap yourself into you know a, a, a good job in academia as well and you know um, jobs in academia are, are hard to get too but so academia is you know there's other things you can do besides teaching as well um, you know you can go into public policy you can become part of a think tank um, and those are really great jobs too actually uh, I remember sitting at a table at the Institute for the Future talking about crowdsourcing and there were a number of sociologists there with PhDs in sociology that were working with a whole array of different corporations looking at media and I was like wow so these people you know they had their PhDs decided not to teach and were doing work at the corporate level um, in areas that they were interested in now yes and uh, so I thought well that's, that's pretty good too <laughs> so so I think that those are some some tips I would I would give um, 
the writing I think is really important. You know, the to hone your writing to get books that that really parse how to write better is important. Um, and you know, working with an editor too. You know, hiring an editor it helps as well. So you know, you, you hone your craft and you get more help or coaching if you need it. I see. Thank you for that. Uh, right now, we only have a few minutes left. I want to be conscious of your time. Uh, again, Dr. Brooks, thank you for having this conversation with us. In this segment of the podcast, we normally ask a lot of our guests just some of their, you know, just some fun facts about themselves. Nothing too serious. You gave us a great amount of uh, information on uh, futurism and the idea of what the future will bring to us and what 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 we should actually look out for um as well as your uh, great career in academia and research um but at this point i like to just just ask you, you know, what, what's your favorite pastime huh. <laughs> well you know my favorite pastime at this point in my life is hanging out with my daughter yeah. too and going to a museum um that's the fun, fun, fun thing for me uh, is, is hanging out with her, you know, and and just like going to plays together, um, even helping her do her homework and listening to her play her violin. Um, mm. That I consider that a great pastime. Um, but great. you know, and 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 other things I like to do is I love to see movies, uh, especially ones about the future. Yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I like to travel. I really love to travel. In fact, I'm going to get a chance to go to Sweden in June, uh, delivering a, um, a talk about Afrofuturism. So, um, what I love about traveling is really looking at other people's cultures mm -hmm. and how they live their everyday lives. You know, um, and and looking at the ways that they've created um, cities. Um, so some of the things I look at in my work, you know, become part of my pastime in that way as well. So, What's your favorite country? Oh, my favorite country. Wow. That's, um, well, that's a toss-up between a lot of, um, a number of them. I mean, I like different countries for different things. You know, I was in Morocco, um, and I have to say the food in Morocco is one of the best foods I've had or cuisines in the world that I've had couscous mm. and meat and the, the pita bread um, sipping tea um, but I also have to say Norway really captured my imagination when I was there too um, did they say that Norway is the happiest place on earth I, yeah I just read that somewhere and you know what <laughs> I believe it they <laughs> I went to a, a town called Bergen it's ringed by seven beautiful mountains, and you just have these nice plazas and roads, and people just seem happy. You know, I yeah. just saw these huge baby carriages, big <laughs> wheels that looks like they were like carrying the king. Um, <laughs> but they, I, I asked people, well, how do you get these carriages? And they said, oh, the government gives them to us because wow. free. Um, because our, stone, our, our roads have cobblestones in them. So these carriages are buffered against those cobblestone roads. And I was like, wow. Um, okay, that's great. Where can I get one? You know? <laughs> so, 
and I went there when once my when my daughter was born too. Um, so, but Norway is just an impressive uh, country for it's just a relaxed space of life. Um, the way that people are taken care of and take care of themselves and their own curiosity about the world and um, they're just a kind of jovial, friendly culture. I really like that. And uh, so I really, I've kind of come to be interested in Scandinavian countries too. Um, you know, some people like to exoticize Africa, uh, maybe I exoticize Scandinavia. Um, but, you know, I, but just, you know, traveling to those countries, Italy is also another place, of course, a really romantic uh, um, place. But just, you know, when you go to these places that have long-held stories about their culture, you just have a renewed appreciation about time. And, um, you know, just getting some cheese and a baguette and having lunch, you know, being able to go to a plaza and sit and drink coffee without having to pay for anything, uh, you know, it, it gives you a whole new sense of what open and public space can be about compared to having to just go to Starbucks if you want to sit down and have a coffee, cup of coffee, right? you know, or sit there publicly, you know, um, you generally have to go to a coffee shop and pay something. Uh, but here, you know, with the way the plazas are created in European cities, um, you know, you have a, a, a renewed sense of public participation and community. And that's what I, I like about it. That's great. You had told us a little earlier about uh, some of the technology that you use, one, one being Flipboard. Uh, do you have any other favorite technologies or applications that you use uh, on a daily basis? Well, um, well, I'm a total Google person. I use Google everything. Um, you know, Google Docs. Um, I, I, another app that I like is called Dragon Dictate, and uh, that's they've gotten really good um, at you know speech speech to text recognition software mm -hmm. uh, that's become so well done that there's not a lot of mistakes made when I'm talking and dictating wow. now um, so I've been using that more for my research and um, I also I also really appreciate YouTube I create playlists yes. for my research on YouTube too so so interesting videos that I get I put under a playlist and it becomes an archive for me to look back at. Um, you know, so those are some, some, some important tools. Um, another app for storing uh, your documents is Goodreader. And I really mm. recommend Goodreader is a great app. It stores PDFs, you can put them in folders and organize them. Um, it's a handy source for looking back at your research. And of course, I love Kindle. So my Kindle app is a um, I know. I, I think one time you pulled it out. I, I, I've seen so many books on that Kindle. Uh, I, I know that you, you're a frequent reader, um, and, and I, I think you probably have that thing filled up uh, where you probably need more space at this point in time, huh? <laughs> well, almost. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I really, yeah, I love, I love Kindle. and just, you yeah. know, it's my Very back. Cool. It's a great tool. So, 
thank you again, Dr. Brooks, for your time this afternoon. I, I really appreciate your your uh, your friendship, your mentorship, um, and then all of the the knowledge that you you share with us today. Um, for for people who are interested in speaking to you, um, how can they reach you through social media? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, and this has been so so much fun uh, just talking with you, and I really appreciated it too. Um, no well, on Twitter, on Twitter, I'm at at Avilani, A V I L O N N Y. So that's at Avilani. That's my handle on Twitter. Um, and people can email me at uh, doctor dot brooks at gmail dot com. So that's dr dot brooks b r o o k s at gmail. Um, those are the best ways to get in touch with me, really. And um, and I'm also on Facebook, but uh, Twitter and and email are are the two biggest things that I look to um, for communication. Okay. So I'd love, I'd love to be in touch with, with people about this stuff and and talk more, yes. have more conversation. And I uh, really appreciate. Thanks for your, uh, you know, being being a, a, a such an enthusiastic and uh, empowering student too. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate our friendship. Thank you, thank you very much, Dr. Brooks. You're you're a great guy, and I definitely look forward to continuing our uh, relationship, our friendship into the future. Um, so once again, everybody, this is Shane, and if you're interested in contacting me. You can reach me directly at Shane, S-H-A-N-E, at ShaneHair.net. And you can also find us on Blog Talk Radio, as well as our Facebook group, uh, uh, The Rabbit Hole Podcast. Be curious of life. Discover new experiences. Always envision yourself in the future. My name is Shane Hare, and thank you for listening to The Rabbit Hole Podcast. Peace. This is The Rabbit Hole Podcast. Peace. (laughs)